0: A podcast one production.
1: From the inside with Peter Ricks. This is part two of Peter's conversation with former agent, manager, publisher and record label owner, amongst many other job titles, John Woodruff. In the 90s, John went on to experience even greater success with two groups, Rock Act The Baby Animals and pop supergroup Savage Garden. In this episode, they look back on how it all happened for these two. Both came to John in very different ways, with one of them having a very rapid rise to the top.
0: I just want to move on a bit, Mm -hmm. is that there was then this question I've always wanted to ask you about, um, which leads into the baby animals, because you may not remember, but you once, many, many years ago, talked to me about a girl you'd you'd found who lived in England and come back to Perth called Susie Demarchi. I remember vividly. And I I remember we we talked about it and you, you told me how talented she was, and then it sort of disappeared out of any sort of my memory vaults and then s- suddenly the baby animals arrives and and clearly you had spent a great deal of time formulating how to bring someone of that talent into the, into the game, which wasn't really how you were. I mean, the, the angels were not a formulation, were they? No. they? Were There was a piece of chemistry that got them to town and yet the baby animals was not that.
2: Uh, no. But, but they, the,
0: the question for me was, uh, uh, did you always know you were good at picking hit records? Look,
2: th- 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 I think they're undeniable, but, you know, th- then I've, you know, by the same token, you know, I, I'm, I'm the man who famously told Neil Finn that the songs weren't good enough. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's okay, mate. Yeah, we all... We Has all, he forgiven you for no, that? No, I don't think he remembers it, mate. He, you know, it's pretty <laughs> insignificant, really, on his radar. But, but you know, I mean, I, I, I pleaded... I pleaded with with, with uh, my good mate, the lead singer of Men at Work, not to call the band Men at Work and please don't, please don't record that song down under. Uh, uh, you know what I mean? So it's sort of, you know. John, these are, these are terrible decisions. Got, no, I know. No, shocking. <laughs> no, it's. I'm just saying to you that at the time, yeah. they're very valid because yeah. if Colin, you know, at the point <coughs> I'd, I would, I'd taken another sabbatical from the music business and I'd, Gone to uh, stage manager Reg Livermore show, uh, called, called Ned Kelly. Oh, Ned Kelly, right. and uh, and it was in the Festival Theatre in Adelaide because we had the contract for the Festival Theatre. So, so I was, um, and the guy from the chorus, this, this guy had a funny eye like I do. He wandered up to me, and he used to sit there with me and my wife in the in the green room and spread sprinkle grass on bread and butter sandwiches afterwards and eat his bread and butter sandwich of his grass, say, so you've got to listen to my record, you've got to listen to my demo, you've got to listen to my demo. And he gave me this cassette and it had Down Under and it was... Now, me, we are talking about work. Colin Hay. Colin yeah, Hay, yeah. yeah. With a street sign, Men at Work on it. And I, I remember going back to him and going, oh, mate, please, don't... I've been, I've been trying so hard to get Australia <laughs> up there in this in the psyche. <laughs> to do a song about Vegemite. Yeah, yeah, no, you can, yeah, Please. So, um, so, no, we all make huge mistakes like that. You know, it's, it's not, you know, I'm not saying therefore, I'm just saying in reference to your First question day. about being able to hear hits. But Susie was an undeniable star. Mm. I mean, she's just got, she walks into this room and there's no one of the four of us that's not looking at her. And, and then she opens her mouth and you're going to look at her again. She's just got that thing. And so when I met her, she was a blonde which she wasn't naturally, and she and two of her girlfriends who were also blondes were, were terrorising the nightclubs in London um, and, and trying to get uh, through the music business, but, but really they spent their nights terrorising the nightclubs. And, um, and basically, um, and I said, Susie, besides all the covers and stuff you're doing, have you ever written a song? She said, yeah, I've got three. And she played me Painless, the first song she played me, and it was the same arrangement. And I went, that's undeniable. Mm. That song's just undeniable. And, and it was on a cassette, and I went, well, we need to sort this out. So, so I, she'd well,
0: come to, visit, to see you to talk Well, about no, that.
2: I'd, I'd actually seen her on late-night television, uh, off my face, drinking a mini bar in a hotel somewhere in London with um, singing a Stock and Waterman song and 15 clothing changes. And I went, and she's a great voice, and I'm going, what are you singing that for? Do you know what I mean? So I tracked it down, and I waited for the chiron to come up at the end, and it was EMI, and I knew one guy on EMI. And so I got a hold of him, and he's oh, she'd know her. She's from Perth, like everybody in Australia knows everybody in Australia. Right? Of course. So... Um, so I tracked her down and I said, have you ever have you ever um, written a song? And she said, this is the song. here they are. Brand. And I said, well, we need to come back. Well, she then came back and she lived in Perth and she had a little band that she'd been playing with in Perth and she really, she's a very headstrong girl and she really wanted them to be her band. And then, you know... Then there were some other bits that went down, which are not really worth discussing. But she really wanted to share everything with them, and I tried to convince her that that you can't. A d- democracy is not what creativity is about. You know, you need to you need to be paid. You need to be paid for what it is that you contribute. You need to be. You know, if you write the songs, then you should get the money. If you if you if If the guitar player is a hero, then they should get more you know it's it needs to be it's not a democracy it can't be a democracy because it'll destroy itself from inside if it turns into a democracy and that ended up being their downfall. That but, was the end problem, but, I'm But sure. boy, that first album was such a great record. Yes. And,
0: and, and they, they really were at the cusp of, of succeeding in North America, weren't well, they?
2: Well, it was working really, really well, um, that, You know, the, uh, mainly because of MTV. MTV picked up Painless and flogged it. And, mm. and, uh, and uh, we were starting to get some enormous strides forward. And then Susie started to terrify Frank Zappa's children, and uh, so we ended up with Dweezil on the road, and and a lot of nights in some very weird circumstances in Frank's house. Well, he read bits out of medical manuals to orchestras, and you know it was all a very, very thing, and uh, so I'm, it all got it all got a bit.
0: I'm not sure how many uh, people listening to this would genuinely understand what it means to, in those days in particular, to hop in the back of a. Truck or a van, if you want to call it that, which I know you did in the, with the Angels, and you would have had to do it in some way with with the baby animals to to get to these places. You're going to play little little nightclubs all over the all over North America, aren't you? And you're going to drive there the whole time.
2: Yeah, the, and Is there's it, a tour bus involved usually. Uh, and the Angels, yeah, the Angels had a tour bus for a long time. In fact, we we had a good story one night. We were out on the highway. Um, and we kept passing this, the only two of us on the road that was older than ours. And generally it was broken down. And generally ours broke down as well. And finally we stopped and, and said, look, you know, these guys were looking really desperate and hanging out around. So we stopped and said, you know, can we, can we, yeah, yeah, can you get us to the next town? We're playing another gig. And it was you too. Oh. And, uh, and they got on the bus and, and I remember three of them went down the back to have a prayer meeting and the rest of us sat up the front, going, "Those guys having a prayer meeting Yeah, they are. Yeah, okay." And uh, and then probably three months later, we saw live at, uh, G- at the Red Rocks. Yeah, that's <laughs> the right. video. And yeah. Oh, that was two. <laughs> how come they got past us so quickly? <laughs> so so yeah. But, but those sort of those sort of things went on for a long time. We were on a lot of buses together. And and, and how
0: many shows in a week would you have to do where you
2: bounced around? Five. Right. Five or six, then you, then you get into the next level where you go with uh, opening for another act. I mean, with, with Baby Animals, we opened for Van Halen for six months continuously on the road in America. So we were, you know, we would wake up underneath the stadium, get up, have breakfast out of a Bay marie The record company would turn up, take us out in a car to drive radio stations who could be less interested. Uh, and then we'd come back, do a sound check do a meet and greet with 100 fans who could be less interested and then play to a stadium full of people who could be less interested. While they waited for... While they waited for Van Halen, yeah. But we had a great time doing it. Yes. I'm not sure how much good it did. Yeah. Uh, But we were sort of... We were getting enough audience following to get going. It was just that the second album just wasn't good enough.
0: Yeah. But the legacy then became that the band imploded. Yeah. 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 And yet... Somehow I can look around um, Sydney and Melbourne, and there's baby animals on. A yeah, they're poster. still
2: playing, and so they should. I, I think that first album that that they made was the best record that I was ever involved with, uh, and it's still, I still think it stands to the test of time. I think the 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 sound of that record, Chris Lord Algie mixed it, uh, it. It you know it it just it sounded like a hit record, and and it was, uh, and it's got some great songs on it, and and. And I was so disappointed with the result of the second album. But, you know, in the middle of all of that, I got into bed with, with Terry Ellis, who was half of Chrysalis. He was the Ellis out of Chris Wright and Terry Ellis. And we put to, or he put together and invited me in to a, a brand-new label called Amargo yeah, in yeah. New York. And, uh, boy, it looked the part. We, 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 were, we, we took up two floors of Carnegie Towers with the white grand piano and the foyer and the whole routine but we sort of had that half. That
0: sounds slightly cliché, John.
2: Yeah, I know. We sort, of had <laughs> we sort of had half. It was good fun. We got, uh, through, some, we got through some of BMG's money. So we, we
0: moved to the, uh, the two young men from Brisbane who arrived
2: with demos that you saw. They didn't actually even arrive with them. Oh. I, I used to get demos all the time, especially because of the magazine and everything. I would get demos mailed to me. And and in those days, the CD format had arrived, well and truly. And I got a cassette from from this band that was covered in sprinkly, sparkly bits. And they were called Dante. So Dante, sprinkly, sparkly bits, cassette tape. I just said, I've got to listen to this. There's no way I can't not listen. I've got f- anybody got a cassette player. And somebody had dug one out of a drawer somewhere and blew the dust off it and I put it on and the first track I heard was to the moon and back and I went good son that's a little bit undeniable mm. so i said okay so i flew to brisbane and i sat down with them and they are very young very young and 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 really nice guys like some of the nicest blokes i'd ever met the really genuinely nice people and both on the doll one worked in a record store i think and they were saying um I, you know, I always say to artists, you know, what do you really want? What is it you're after? What, what would be, what would fill your heart with glee? What would be, the, and and they both said to me that the thing they could imagine themselves doing one day was walking into the kitchen, and one of them lived in Logan, for example, in Brisbane, and putting the money for the mortgage on the table in for their parents and going, there's your home. And I just went, ooh, you can't deny that idea. So I went, okay. So, um so i then went out to all the record labels in australia and said um okay boys i'm here let's go you know we're we're ready you know i've got a new one the
0: the legendary john yeah he's he's, he's
2: arrived (laughs) with his new band and it was right in the middle of the grunge era was if you didn't come from seattle you were nothing and uh and they all just went john have you lost it have you you just lost the plot right this is a pop band and I went, no, no, listen to the songs, guys. Listen to the voice and listen to this. No, no, you've lost the plot. And none of them would sign it. No one in Australia wanted to sign that band. Everyone passed on it. Bless their hearts. Thank you very much. There is a God. And so, and so uh, I went to Charles Fisher and scraped together some, some money on the, on, the, on the mortgage, on the house and said, Charles, don't care how long it takes, you need to sit down with these guys in your studio at home and you need to make a record and and they 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 have a, a great idea about songs and but no idea of how to play their instruments or record and you're going to have to spend it and it took him a long time
0: he talks with great fondness of it though oh, and, it was a and, great it was a and, great 6 months and being in his lounge room and
2: all that sort of wonderful legend
0: yeah And you did mortgage your house
2: yeah well we you're line of capital depends on your mortgage, so yeah, I didn't quite. go in and take a new mortgage. I just went yeah backed up by the house we need to spend some money here
0: and so you established your own label to do this or mm-hmm.
2: well, the own production
0: company, company. Yeah. and and roadshow I mean the most surprising distribution organization on the planet
2: yeah again it came from that same philosophy of of, of having been knocked back by the majors and um, I felt the same as I felt about the other side of town, um, you know, that I really needed to have somewhere where we were going to be able to do whatever we needed to do our way. And, and um, Chris Chard, who ran the Road B- Nuts and Boats and Bolter Roadshow at that time still does, um, is a lovely human being, a wonderful, one of the nicest people I've ever worked with. And he, he said, yeah, well, let's go. Let's do it. Uh, and he had some people working for him that I'd worked with before, but you know, it was, he was really, it was really him putting his arm around it and going, "Let's go." So at that point, we did a, a lease deal, um, which means that you can still maintain ownership of your product, and you can still maintain control, and it just about triples your royalty. And we sold a million, two, a million three of that first album. So w- was happy. it word of mouth to begin with, or was it just it stuck on radio? Uh, mate the, uh, I want you was just a war you know it was a, it was a ditzy sort of hit, but it was and it was probably the most ditzy track on that record but but it was so natural for radio and they picked it up and ran with it and then before I could even get to America um, to to get it going from there, an, an American um, consultant now they 're the people who sit just above the Indies in the payment scheme of things. Uh, who also was a consultant for for here as well for this radio network R- for Australia? Yeah, it's not, been not here. Pushing. Sorry, yeah, for Australia. <laughs> he um, he was in Australia talking to their conference, and he heard it on Melbourne radio, and he took it back and he stuck it on, on uh, I think it was the Eagle in Dallas, which is the big P one in Dallas, and uh, and it went off, right. and that's before I could even get there. So at that point, Sony. Columbia Records were on the phone going, yeah, "We have to have this." Uh, as as was Arista, as was you know, I mean, we, we, everybody wanted it. So after and,
0: all those years, excuse me, interrupting. After all those years of wandering around Central Park, going, "Okay, yeah, I'm going yeah, in. Yeah, I to yeah, go. Yeah, put the put the metal vest yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. you're going to go for the argument. Wait for the telephone yeah. calls back, and all of a sudden, you got a record yeah. without having to ever do anything other than. Created,
2: yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and so basically, then they said, Well, we, uh, we'd like to, um, we'd like to, uh, you know, we need you to come over and, and get stuck into this, but unfortunately, it's going too fast. So, in actual fact, it was going so fast that they had they couldn't impress up the records to get them out to radio, they were sent dats to radio, they sent dat tapes of the song to radio because radio was screaming for it. So, basically. From that point on, if your next if your next song is is to the moon and Back and the next song is is uh is um you know the big hit mm. uh, then basically you know you're on a fairly good path
0: and, and were you aware by
2: then of the that the roller coaster was going to go no you never you would never know that mate you, see, you know when America decides to head. In one direction, when they stampede, you, you know it's it's awesome. Mm. If especially if it's in the direction you're going in, but it's it's um it's an awesome spectacle, and you can't and you and you really, you know, you have to kill. I mean, I can remember travelling around in limos with these guys, and we all kept going. Do you reckon he's seen us yet? Do you reckon, reckon he spotted us? You reckon it's like you know, when is this all going go like, you know, when, to when, when is the when is the truth going to yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So it's sort of, um, but really, it's more. Um, you know, you've got to say that, that in retrospect, it's the songs. It's, you know, they're undeniable songs and the voice. So you go, okay, so now you really now you've gone from touring to make a record to touring to back up a record to touring t- to capitalise on a record. Um, and, and that was the hurdle that they had a lot of problems dealing with. Going live. No, going live to back up a record rather than right. going live to break a record. If, if a band's out there playing little venues going, please notice this, please notice this, there's a certain camaraderie that builds within the, within the camp mm. that, that is, sustains them through all the hurdles they have to go through. For bands going out there to an adoring audience in Nuremberg ring in Germany who are all screaming out their name and talking to them and they've never, they can't speak German, they've never been to Germany before... It's all a little bit overwhelming. Do you know what I mean? It's all a little bit, um, I'm probably, this is, um, I'm not really comfortable here. Do you did know the, what I mean?
0: Did the boys grow up quick?
2: They, they did a bit. Um, yeah, they did. They did. And they're, they're still the loveliest people that I've ever been involved with in terms of musicians in the business. They still deeply care about um, uh, about their families and the people around them.
0: I've often wondered...
2: What if they'd stayed together, whether the
0: level of quality of that because it was the is you're right, the songs were the key, and yet there was a point where it, it i mean obviously one of them decided they didn't want to be they, the,
2: see they've never they've never even even as solo artists i mean darren 's solo stuff is fairly left to center i've got okay. to say but um but they've never put out crap, never ever they these guys actually know quality. Material, mm. they know how to do it. Um, but one of them didn't want to do it anymore because he, he, the adulation bothered him completely, bothered him. The adulation for seemingly no reason bothered him. And and the other one got a bit sick of carrying the whole load. Do you know what I mean? So it was sort of, but by the same token, you know, you, you can't stop it. I mean, I've still got the records and I know, see, see what they sell, and it still know, sells. Oh man and the, and the and the um and you know it, there's an idea in the music business now you know with this whole f- this whole uh, robbery if you like robbery downturn whatever you want to call it of the digital era that that took everything away from from the recording artists and the, and uh, you know and 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 put them on a downward slope is now on an upward turn and mm. and the um and people have taken streaming to heart and so uh, so the streaming income is starting to grow considerably. And that's that's very passive. You don't have to do anything about that. You just have to keep it in, in front of people. So basically, um, I'm watching the streaming income increase, you know, from a fairly low base to, you know, to, b- b- by increments of, of 50 to 70% every time I get a six-monthly statement. And so basically, um, and, and just, Five weeks ago, Google picked up the f- the first hit, the first big hit, and said we want to use this song to launch um, Google Play around the world. And currently, it's an ad playing in the Super Bowl. So watch what the streaming income does now.
0: <clears throat> <coughs> Nothing to complain about.
2: No, thing. it's very it's it's, mate. I'm I'm the most blessed person in the world. I really have had a blessed life.
0: So what? Well, you what, you earned every.
2: Every minute, Well, not, genre. you know, this is. Yeah. When's, when's, we'll
0: pat each other on the back. Yeah. But the, the how, rough terms, how, how many records have they sold?
2: Well, Album. see, when you could tell records, when records sold, when during the selling of records, 22 million. Wow. But, um, but, you know, most of that was on tape lease. Most of that was on a lease deal. We owned the records mm. or we were leasing them to someone so we could control the royalty flow a bit. Mm. And, and, um, and basically, you know, we, and, and we shared in it. So so everybody's been very fairly dealt with. Do you know what I mean? There's nobody sitting there going. I mean, the only thing you have to question are the royalty statements. Yeah, you get the auditors in. Well, yeah, you know, that's, that's a process. I've done that twice in my life. Don't
1: want to do that again. This is From the Inside with Peter Ricks. And this is part two of his conversation with former agent, manager, publisher and record label owner, John Woodruff. Having experienced the big highs and lows that come with managing successful bands, Peter and John look at what it really takes for a manager to work with an artist to break through. They look at how it's changed with the modern day music landscape, now including YouTube and music streaming. And they also talk about John's own present day personal passions. Yeah, the song that was number one on Billboard was Truly Madly Deeply, but the, there
2: were, there was, we had three number ones in Billboard. Off that first album, and uh, it, the the first one was w- w- the first one was and was number one because of the amount of airplay it got, not because of the amount of sales it got. Which was the "I Want You," I don't know if I need you. The second one that went to number one, which is a big combination of airplay and sales, was was um, was "To the Moon and Back," and the third one was "Truly Madly Deeply." So there's, there was there was there was three off that album, and then on the next album. When the band delivered the record, and it was a very, very expensive record because by that point they knew how to spend money. Yeah, they were in America. They? <laughs> when they finally finished the record, they played it to me and the guy who ran Columbia at the same time. I was actually at the studio with them, so I knew what, pretty much what it was about. And we both agreed with them that, look, we've sold about $10 million of the first record at this point, so... We'll sell three million of this, maybe four, but not ten. You need another big ballad. Oh, we're, not, we're not. We've grown since then. We're not the same band we were. No, no. No, sorry. We don't play. We're, no, no. We don't. No, sorry. We're not doing that. And the next morning they came down with I Knew I Loved You Before I Met You as a demo and said, here's the song you were looking for. I Knew I Loved You Before I Met You and that, that went to number one as well. So it was like, so you, sometimes you've got to put your foot down.
0: So the, f- the, the Savage Garden journey and you know, without trying to redefine it, there's a phenomenon to how, how it evolved and grew so, so wonderfully. But I mean, I still think... You're, play, you're part of it all. You might not have written the songs, but you certainly knew what to do when you finally got to the point of being able to, frankly, deal with it the radio. All. Yeah. yeah,
2: well, you know, is, is it, can it happen again? Um, um, it will be very different now, and, and this is where I was saying to you. I think when you spoke to me about doing this, you know, I'm not in the business. I'm not definitively in the business. So a guy like John Watson can tell you a lot more about what currently happens in the business and how you currently, what the current tricks are. I mean, his ability to manipulate um, social media it astounds me. But, you know, that's, no, it's its a, its a new gift. Mm. It's a gift I would have no idea about. My, my ability was to... Manipulate was radio. Manipulate radio, yes, exactly. Yeah. So it was really, it's really about... Um, it's really about where you get into the medium and how you work the medium. It's you know, the, uh,
0: I still believe that the str- the music itself has never gone away, but the business has had to learn how to live with a new form of communication. Which, if I'm if I'm a bit harsh about it, John, the major record companies out of North America years and years ago should have owned Napster and didn't. So they let Steve Jobs take take over the music business for a while and now streaming has become... Uh, so a, a refinement of an art form that requires, in the end, the people who make these records, the people who write them, the people who perform. It does,
2: them. it does. But you know, interestingly enough, the those players that you're talking about now are on most of the streaming outlets. So, yeah. so it's basically, you know, the the, the uh, you know, it is it is the ability to to adapt, but. But from the artist's point of view and from the manager's point of view, so the only place, two places I can—they're the only two I can talk about. I'd have no inkling of what the business does on the other side. Is basically to say, you know, there is no—if you can't—if you can hear it, then you should marry it, and if you can't hear it, you shouldn't. And you know, and and you know, these guys, people are not stupid. The people out there who are hearing music are, are, are basically as emotional as you or I, they, they believe it, they hear it, they want it, and they come after it. And if there's no filter between them and the source, then they'll take it on their own terms. If you filter it, then the more you filter it, the less they'll take it. So, you know, if, if being up front in a record store and being at the right price point and being at the, the with the right cover and being with this, being with that, being with that are all necessary functions of how you get your record out there, the filters are just getting way too strong. But if you're talking about radio, people listen to radio, if you're now talking about streaming, there is no filter. Hmm. And so basically- Well, YouTube's the other one, isn't it? Oh, YouTube is the other one, but there's a sort of a filter with YouTube because- well, see, the, the music business creates its own filters. There's always going to be a place for the, um, oh, God, what would you call it? The facilitator. So even with streaming, you know, the, the, the record companies have found a way of p- paying um, playlists Generators.
0: Which tends to be YouTube now, right?
2: Well, no, there's a, there are there – are, no, but they do the same on YouTube. There are yeah. playlist generators on YouTube. But, yeah. but, in, but if you want to get around in the streaming world, not quite so much now but a year ago, you know, you needed to be on these particular guy, you know, you want to be on this guy's show, this guy's show, this guy – because people were taking their, their music on streaming from a program, mm. not, not as individual songs. Right, they uh, were taking it. So, and the only way they discovered new music off streaming was if you ended up on somebody's playlist who had a bunch of other songs on the playlist that people wanted to hear. So was, it's was so parallel to radio; it's ridiculous.
0: And but that's what's happening now with Spotify. You've got that sort of yeah, yeah. That's cetera. exactly
2: so. So the, so now, guess who the record labels are paying hmm. to be on their list? Hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's the same. It's the same game with a different name. But but it's really I'm not I'm not cynical about it. I think it's a Whatever you have to do, because in the end, I know that the music, only the good music will get out there. The, the, you know, the, the, there comes a point where it gets realistic. There comes a point where, the, where you know, the rubber meets the road and these people have to either ring the radio station, request it at the streaming company, buy the download, uh, take the, you know, whatever it is that they're paying for, or getting the, go and see the band, whatever it is, the consumer makes the decision.
0: So... The other half of, the, well, not it's not a half, but there's a, a whole piece of the John Woodruff story that, that is about how you've fostered and interacted with the business in, in Australia. So I remember you and the managers forum being instigated when we all went to
2: Canberra and did that strange thing you made me? That was fantastic. What was that called? Who took the music? Yeah, uh, yeah, that was that was fantastic stunt. And 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 you know what? The, the, Australia is still one of the only two countries in the world that has a, a transmission copyright, but they made it, they made it um, duplicate. Right. So there's only one other country in the world with it, which is Sweden. And so, if you tried to to put a piece of copyrighted material on the web between here and Sweden, you could technically be prosecuted somewhere in the ocean between here and Sweden. But but it, you know, that was what we were trying to do. I was trying to say to everybody, look, I built this just to give the background to the people here, we built we built this Perspect Studio in the middle of the front of Parliament House, uh, and we p- put together a super group of, you know, a yeah. great me anyway. And we and we and we did a song and we recorded it and we stuffed it into the web and I had Apple backing me and I remember specifically because it was the first time Apple had ever had a computer that had two bits to it. Before that, they were just the brick and then there was the, the, the screen and the bit. Yeah, there so that was the first one of those. So it was very early on in the technology and the only place that we could get a big enough pipe to get it into the web was at the ANU in, in the center of the web in Canberra. This is why we did it there and piped it straight into the web in Canberra. And then we downloaded it in Parliament House and burned it on one of those old green CD burners that they first bought out and then stuck it in a ghetto blaster and put it on the speaker's desk and said, we just did this in your garage. Do you understand the implication of this? Uh, you know, um, And none of them did, none of them were even close to understanding it. But the journalists, which I couldn't believe, couldn't understand it either. And they're just waking up to it now. they have taking the print media uh, another five years to wake up to it. And the film business is just waking up to it now as well. It's like, come on, guys, you can't – you know, copyright rec- will protect itself. If you give someone a copyright, the business will protect it. Uh,
0: you had a visit from Paul Keating, the Prime Minister at the time, and I, yeah. I always thought he – he sort of got it a bit. He I was think, desperate th- to see what was going I, yeah,
2: on. Yeah, I think they all wanted to get in front of the TV camera. Yeah. But but it was um, it was a great stunt. But it, it was. was really, we're really trying to work out why these people, especially the journalists. I mean, all they could berate everybody about was, um, uh, yeah, was the fact that, you know, records were too expensive and parallel importation should happen and, you know, all this sort of carry on. And, and I'm going, you're missing the point, guys. You see... This guy, Rupert Murdoch, he's going to take a story that you've written for his Sydney newspaper and he's going to put it in a London newspaper. He's not going to pay you anything more for it. Even though you wrote it and you created it and you're not going to get any more money for it. Do you get that idea? No, well, okay, well. Well, that's
0: because they didn't really at the time come anywhere near understanding what was going to happen with the globalisation of information either.
2: Well, no, I guess not. It's been a lot but it was pretty obvious if you saw what happened with the music. Do you know what I mean? Well, we
0: were the, uh, that, that's the point, though. I mean, whatever happens to the music business, it always seems to me that it's the first thing that, that, that gets impacted.
2: Because, so it. the, because it's a kid's market. And youth, and youth, the only thing that really scares old people is youth. Mm. The, only, the only things that I've ever done in my life that's actually worked with convincing the crusty old guys at the record labels that there's a problem is when a 20-year-old kid says to them, you're wrong.
0: So I don't want to be rude or anything, but you and I are now crusty old men. Oh, no,
2: we are. That's why I'm not in it. <laughs> That's why I can easily sit on the sidelines and throw rocks. So would you do it all again? I, if, look, if you went back to being... I, I, if, if you asked me if I found the most super band in the world, would I go back into it again? No. No. Right. No, because it's... it's uh, the limit... The limitations on your life are very finite. I mean, I'm just looking at getting another boat and, and um, you know, um, and and it... it well, we'll never see you again. This quite possibly boat. will be the last boat I ever get. Do you know what I mean? If it's not, it'll be the second last. <laughs> Don't ever say it for my <laughs> wife, I said that. Um, so, do you know what I mean? So, it's really, you've got to really just, you know, you only have a finite number of years to do things.
0: One of the last questions. T- tell me all about Support Act because I know you're very, very...
2: Yeah, uh, look, there were two things that I wanted to bring up before the end of this. I'm, yep. First of all, uh, way back in, the, in 20 years ago um, when Phil Tripp was around and making noise about his iPad, his iPod and the fact that we shouldn't have copyright and the fact that he was allowed to have as many tunes as he liked without paying for them and, you know, all that stuff he was carrying on with. Um, he got me to speak at a conference in in north sydney and and I had decided th- that I think that the and i still think I still think it 's the same opinion that the treatment of um, of Australia of people coming here seeking help asylum seekers is atrocious, just atrocious it 's shameful what we do with these people and 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 the world would be a very different place if that attitude had been around. Even a hundred years ago, fifty years ago, Australia wouldn't exist if that had been around. So, so in the end, I I spoke out at that conference in the middle of my rave about the business, saying this is shameful treatment. Children in, in detention is, is, is more shameful, and this needs to, this just needs to stop. And as good people say, nothing bad things happen. So let's do it. Um, and I made a promise to myself and to those people there that if I ever got to speak at a public or a podcast like this, I would say it again and I would keep saying it. So that's one thing I just needed to say. Yeah, no, it's please. shameful and it needs to be said as often as we well, can changed, it. It hasn't changed and it's shameful, but I'm just, it needs to be said. We can't just shut up about it, you know? Right. And secondly, um, yeah, you were saying about, uh, about the, the uh, support act situation. Um, I didn't really see what that was about until I got on the board and our industry has never had superannuation it's never had the ability to look after its own. It's never had the ability to help its its suffering. It's never so a roadie can can be involved in you know as an active young man with a young family and have a bad truck accident and end up penniless. No superannuation, no health coverage, no nothing. He just he gets the standard health treatment Australia gives, but his family doesn't live off that, and his wife can't live off that, and his kids can't live off that, and and uh, and so, and so um, when the support act thing came along, I just went, well, we just have to get behind this, and so I'm not on the committee anymore. Um, but I'm very, very, very involved with whatever they do and we will continue doing it. And I think now they've just done this thing on mental health. I mean, you know, Alberts have got involved and put the money in for mental health. And I think it's – I think Jonah Cave, Joe Cave, who, who's, who does the who, – who runs, runs it, is, it yeah. is really, really good.
0: Yeah. But it, 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 is, it is really a, uh, a base for men and women who've worked in the business who have really – reached the end of their working life in some cases, well, and who just and or, have no or
2: been or been, you know, you could make a case if you were involved in the music business, you know, that you know, a DJ from here could make a case mm. that you know, hey, I was a successful guy, I've, I've fallen on really hard times, and, and I I've, I got no one to turn to, while well, they're there to pick up the pieces. So, I think it's
0: pretty good. So, what a interesting story. You've, what a life you've had, mate. Mm, yeah, it's been great. Um, so most of it's about love and grind and in the end some reward or is your view of it all that it was not much grind?
2: Uh look, there was a lot of, there was a bit of grind. There was not a lot of grind. There was a bit of grind. There was a lot of fun. There was way too much partying and, you know, hence my memory lapses, um, uh, f- we'll you're forgiven for memory lapses. We'll go we'll really... on for a while, um, but but uh, but the 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 some of the individuals, the the the, the few, like I'm sure happens in every trade a life, the few really good individuals that I've come across, are there for life. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Really, they really, they are, you know. And there are some really good ones. Some of them are some of the more um, badly behaved members of our business. But you know, you've interviewed most of them.
0: Square pegs, round holes. Yeah, no,
2: that's the, that's them.
0: Mate, Woody, you deserve whatever comes your way. You've given more to the business than most people I, I know, it. and uh, and I can only imagine what it must have been like at the kitchen table with Christine when uh, those Savage Garden album sales started. The figures started coming into the room after all those years. Finally, the old man actually.
2: Finally, the old man came home. Yeah, you know what? That's never been a conversation we've had. She's been more intent on on. We've got a little charity charitable trust going and she's much more intent on making sure that works. Do you know what I mean? It's, like,
0: yeah, but it's a, such an eclectic life you two have led. Yeah. Congratulations and thanks for taking the journey with us today on From the Inside. Bless you and I hope the boat's beautiful and I hope it travels the bloody world for I you, mate. We're
2: going to take it through the, through the Northwest Passage. That's the, that's the challenge. That's yeah. the mountain. And you and John
1: Wayne. <laughs> In the next episode, Peter Ricks speaks to John Watson. From signing a very young silver chair at age 14 to Missy Higgins, The Presets, Goitier, and to now managing Cold Chisel and Midnight Oil, Watson's roster as a manager and record label owner is both successful and diverse. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. For more episodes... Head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.